Well, this morning you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And only seven weeks ago we began our venture through the Gospel of Mark, one chapter at a time. And the first chapter done, some will go quicker than others, but it's just the nature of preaching through a Gospel. Today we begin Mark chapter 2. I have to make one quick disclaimer, though. Apparently last week I made the comment where I said that now you would never have to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1 ever again. I didn't really mean ever again. I meant, you know, here preaching we're done with Mark chapter 1. Hopefully on your own at home, you will still from time to time read Mark chapter 1. But for us, we are moving on. And when we left off, Jesus was out and about in the region of Galilee. He's going from town to town, preaching, healing, casting out demons. And last week at the end of chapter 1, we saw Jesus in one of these unidentified Galilean towns where a leper is healed, or should I say cleansed. This was a major miracle. It was a sign of the Messiah, and even more so, the ability to cleanse a leper. It was thought of as something that only God could do. And as news of this miracle spread, the popularity of Jesus rose to a new level. And it got to the point where he couldn't even enter a town without being swamped by people wanting a miracle, wanting a, a healing. This troubled Jesus because he didn't want the people seeking him out for the wrong reasons. So he stayed out in the unpopulated areas. That's where he left off. As we turn the page, though, to Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus, however, returning home to Capernaum after this time away. This tour of Galilee took weeks, perhaps even months, but now it was time to come home, rest a little bit. So he sneaks back into town, uh, almost as if he's trying to be unseen. But as is to be expected, everyone finds out that he's home, and once again he is swamped by the crowds. It is here we see Jesus in action, again performing great signs. Only this time, at the beginning of chapter 2, something is different. Jesus does something different. He shows the people something he has not done before. Something no one has ever done before. And it is with this that he captures their amazement and wonder. This unique ability. People have always been captivated and fascinated by others with unique abilities. And there's a reason that When it comes to the book of Judges, most people can't name any character except Samson. It's because Samson, even though his story only takes a couple of chapters, he was such a unique figure. He had this unique ability. He was like an Old Testament Superman. Literally, he had this strength that no one else has ever had, and he sticks out. We remember him for this unique ability. The same goes for King Solomon. He had this unique ability of of supernatural wisdom. He had a knowledge and a wisdom that no one else possessed. And even the Queen of Sheba traveled from Egypt, even Ethiopia, just to see him and get a glimpse of this unique superhuman wisdom. Today, people are equally amazed by others with unique abilities. For instance, just a handful of people alive are known as savants. These are people who actually have a serious mental disability, but almost as a side effect, it comes with a mental super ability. They can do things with their minds that other people cannot do. For instance, Daniel Tammet holds the European record for memorizing and repeating 
the mathematical number pi. You know, the number pi, 3.14. Well, over a period of five hours, he recounted, repeated this number from memory up to 22,514 digits long. And it only took him three weeks to memorize it. And it was verified by five different independent people. Daniel also speaks dozens of languages. He can learn them in weeks. And to prove this, a documentary team challenged him to learn a brand new language of Icelandic in one week. And sure enough, a week later, he appeared on live television conversing in fluent Icelandic. And people like this truly have unique minds. It baffles us. It confounds us. It amazes us. We're captivated by it because we know it's something that we will never be able to do, never in a million years could we do these things. From intelligence to strength to skill to precision, the unique amazes us. And I wonder if this is why people were so amazed by Jesus. And surely that's the case. He did several amazing things. He displayed some truly unique abilities, from multiplying bread to walking on water to raising the dead. These things are not supposed to be possible. People shouldn't be doing this. But he had these amazing abilities. However, a lot of what Jesus did, when you think about it, wasn't exactly unique. For example, there were many great miracles in the Old Testament. God enabled Elisha to make an iron axe head float in water. And he enabled Elijah to raise someone else from the dead. So there were great miracles by God's power before Jesus came around. Now you could say that Jesus did more miracles. He did greater miracles. His power came from himself. That's all true. But it wasn't the first time a lot of these things happened. These wonders that he did. However, what we find in our passage today in Mark 2, what we're going to see, it's an ability that Jesus had that was absolutely 100% unique. Here's an ability that has not and cannot ever be reproduced by another human. It's just not possible. And sure, other people have performed miracles by God's power. See that in the Old Testament, even in the New. But, but no one has ever done or can do what Jesus does here in Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And so the question is, what is it? What is this unique ability that Jesus possesses? And the answer is the ability to forgive sins. It's the ability to forgive sins. Now, the Jews, they thought that was something only God can do. And they were right. So what are they to make of this Jesus figure? He comes around, and in their presence, before their very eyes, he declares a man forgiven of his sins. What do they make of that? Well, we're we're about to find out. As we enter chapter 2, we see a change take place in Christ's ministry. I mean, chapter one, that was, chapter 1 was great. Jesus was performing miracles. He was working wonders, preaching, teaching. The people loved him. It was all rosy. It was great. In chapter 2, things start to change for Jesus and his ministry. 
Starting in chapter 2, we see the first hints of opposition to Jesus. And this opposition is only going to build. Remember, Jesus has an appointment with the cross. And sadly, rejection by his own people is a part of that plan. And here's how things start to go downhill for Jesus, humanly speaking. Starting in chapter 2, at least when it comes to the religious authorities. These religious leaders, they start off by questioning Jesus and his disciples. But soon this questioning turns into outright accusation of wrongdoing. Then they they try and trap him and catch him red-handed doing something wrong. When this fails, though, that's when they begin to conspire to kill him. And this opposition culminates in chapter 3, which we'll see in time, where now the religious leaders claim that Jesus is possessed by Satan and only performs his miracles by the power of Satan. And over the next two chapters, things get really bad, at least when it comes to these religious authorities. Once this opposition starts, it doesn't end. And continually throughout his ministry, Jesus only finds adversaries in the religious establishment. But that's expected because they were darkness and he was light. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy and wickedness. And instead of humbling themselves and repenting before God, they just decided to kill him. Anyway, that's all to come. We will see that in time. But this thread of opposition against Jesus, where did it start? At least according to the Gospel of Mark, it's right here, chapter 2. This is when that opposition begins. And we even find it beginning in his new hometown of Capernaum. Look at just the first verse as we start, Mark 2, and look at verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. After this tour of Galilee that he was on, most likely Jesus returns to the home of Peter. This is the same home where Jesus held his first healing crusade, if you want to call it that, back in chapter 1. It's almost like Jesus and the disciples were trying to sneak into town Not to be noticed, so they could finally get some rest, but that just wasn't going to happen. It didn't take long. People found out Jesus was at home. So naturally, a crowd gathers. Look at verse 2. And many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. If this was, again, Peter's house, then when people heard that Jesus was back, they knew right where to go. The first time, however, the crowd was gathered outside the house. But this time, they're coming in. They start barging their way inside this house. I mean, just imagine that. It's one thing to have a crowd of people clamoring for you, standing outside your door. It's another thing when that crowd comes in, and they're on the inside. And once you let them in, they just don't stop coming. Can you imagine that? Picture your own house right now, filled, standing room only, every single room, just filled with people. And some of you, it already just makes you anxious just to think of that. Now, it's a little different in ancient times. 
Oftentimes their homes consisted of just one large room, just one big room like we're in right now. Either way, though, this house was packed to the gills. It was dusty. It was sweaty. It was noisy. But Jesus took advantage of this intrusion. He had left Capernaum because the people, they were only interested in his healing. They didn't really want to hear him teach. They wanted him to perform. So he left Capernaum. But now that that frenzy had died down and he had come back and this crowd who's in his house, they're willing to listen. So he teaches. He takes advantage of this time and he teaches. Verse 2 says he speaks the word to them. It's referring to a more informal or conversational type of, of teaching. Now, we don't actually hear what Jesus said that day. I, I would love to know, but Mark doesn't tell us. Rather, his focus is, on the con- is not on the content of his teaching, but what happens next. And we still, though, find a passage filled with lessons. Lessons to learn and apply. Now, that's what I want to turn your attention to now. In the rest of this passage, we encounter five figures or characters. The, this group of four friends, a paralyzed man, the scribes, Jesus, and the crowd itself. And these five people or these five groups, they're, they're almost like characters in a play. And from each one, we learn actually a, a valuable lesson. And that, that's going to be our focus for this morning. With the rest of our time, <clears throat> time I want you to, to learn and apply these five lessons from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Five lessons from Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. Each coming from one of these five characters. Now to be sure, there is only one main lesson in this passage. We call that the authorial intent. There's one purpose to this text, and we're going to major on that. But there are several other good lessons as well, and we want to not let them pass by. So the first is this. It's a lesson from the four men. And that is to value your good friends. Think about this one. A lesson from the four men to value your good friends. Let's just keep going and look at verse 3. This crowd is at the door and they came, he says, verse 3, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So here we're introduced to this paralytic, which is just a word for a paralyzed man. And this man had to be carried by others. Either he was a paraplegic, meaning he had no movement, no function below the waist, or maybe even a quadriplegic, we don't know. No function, no movement below the neck. And either way, this is a devastating disability, especially in the ancient world. Today we've got motorized wheelchairs to at least give people with this disability some, some movement, some freedom to move around. But back then, you were 100% dependent on others for your transportation, for your very survival. Thankfully, this paralytic had four good friends. Before we learn much about this man who was paralyzed, we learn first about his four friends. If they were family members, most likely Mark would have just said so. So we're safe in calling them friends. Whatever their relation, though, they certainly loved him. They cared for him, enough to carry him to Jesus. 
Jesus had done some healing before in Capernaum, and they missed out. And this man, he's still paralyzed. He was not healed. They missed out that first time around. So when news came that Jesus is back, he's back, he's home, these four friends thought to themselves, we're not going to miss. We're not going to miss this opportunity again. Jesus is back, and we are taking our friend to see him. So they banded together. They grabbed a corner, each, and they took their friend to see Jesus, to be healed. But there was a problem. As soon as they showed up at the house, they realized that the crowd had beat them to the punch. Everyone else was already there. And it was so packed, it was standing room only, and the crowd even spilled out into the street. And they just looked at each other, and they knew Hundreds of people were already clamoring to get inside. There was no way. There was no way they were getting inside, especially while carrying their paralyzed friend. They're just not going to make it. They're going to miss this opportunity again. But this did not stop them. Most people would see this as a closed door. Well, the door is closed. I guess we just have to go home. But they thought to themselves, well, if the door is closed... We'll just go through the roof. And that's exactly what they did. Look at verse 4. Being unable to get to him, Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now you may think, and this sounds extreme, and you're right. I mean, were these guys just happening to have a, a jackhammer with them? I mean, what's, what's going on here? Well, back then, roof construction was a little different. In these ancient Middle Eastern homes, roofs were formed first by laying these wooden beams against the walls of the house, three feet apart, and then crosswise on these wooden beams, smaller beams were placed, even pieces of wood, branches. A layer of thatch or brush was matted down on the wood, and then finally, the whole thing was, was layered with uh, mud, clay, a thick layer. About a foot of earth was layered onto these roofs. And when it dried, it performed, uh, rather provided a rather strong structure. The roof became a usable space. Stairs outside the house usually led up to the roof. And you could use it for whatever you wanted. But this explains why these four men are digging an opening in this roof. Quite literally, they dug through the mud and the clay and the branches, making a large enough opening to let their paralyzed friend down. Now you just gotta you gotta picture this scene from the inside though. Just imagine you're there. You made it in. It's standing room only. Jesus is teaching, everyone's just kind of shoulder to shoulder. You start to hear some shuffling on the roof. Then you start to see some debris fall down on people, just starting to trickle down on people. And then suddenly this this crack of light shoots through the roof, penetrating the whole room. You start to see these hands punching through the roof. Maybe some people start yelling and shouting for them to stop. But before anything can be done, you see these four sweaty, dirty faces pop through this opening in the roof. But then they vanish, only to be replaced by a stretcher. And these four ropes pop up, and this stretcher is being lowered down from the roof. And you think to yourself, what is happening? This is crazy. You've never seen this happen before. 
The stretcher lowers down. You see there's a man on the stretcher, but then everyone realizes that the man on the stretcher is paralyzed. And everyone gets quiet because everyone realizes what these people are up to. They're so desperate. They've brought their friend to be healed by Jesus. There's no other way. They've lowered him through the roof. The crowd gets silent. Everyone sits waiting, or rather stands waiting, to see how Jesus will respond. What's he going to do to this? Is he going to heal this person like he's done for so many others? I love imagining all the small details, what it really would have been like. And we too, we sit, we wait. How is Jesus going to respond to this man? Before we see that though, before we move on, I think first we can pause, we can stop for a second and realize there's a lesson here to learn even from these friends. These four men who help their friend, a lesson on friendship. And that is to value your good friends. To value your good friends. One elder at my previous church, he would teach on this passage all the time. He'd always make the same point about these four friends. He'd always ask, who are your four friends? Who do you have in your life who would grab a corner each and carry you if you needed it? I mean, who's in your life? Who do you have like this? Who would do this for you? And also, are you a friend to others in this way? Would you do this for them? You'd carry them if they needed it. What makes these four friends so great? Well, first is their love and their care for their friend. And they gave up their needs to help their friend. They labored to carry him, to bring him to Jesus. They even tore through a roof for him. They were doing whatever it took to help him, and he was not giving them much in return. And what could he do for them? Not a whole lot. Even if this paralytic went home not healed, he would be leaving a rich man because he was blessed with good friends. But more importantly, these men were friends of faith. This is the first time faith is mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, and it goes to these four friends. They get it. And we see in them a faith in action. They possessed this early trust in Jesus. They believed he could help, and they acted upon it. They believed so much, they were willing to dig through a roof to get their friend to Jesus. And when you think about it, most of all, you need friends like this. Friends of faith. You need friends who will take you closer to Jesus, not further away. Do you realize that? When I was younger as a Christian in college, I had to stop hanging out with certain friends because I realized when I'm around them, they were making me less like Jesus, not more. They were dragging me away from this new commitment I had made, not closer. you got to get rid of them. Do you realize this? And then do you value, though, those good friends? Those godly, sanctifying friends. Friends who will help you get closer to the Lord. Additionally, you need to be this type of friend for others in your life. Helping them graciously to deepen their walk with the Lord. To know the Lord better. Really need to learn to value good friends. And to be a good friend in return in this manner. 
This is a good lesson. This is a good lesson to learn from just these four men. And i got to say, it's tempting to kind of stop here and, and really go on a tangent and develop this further. It's a simple lesson. We're going to leave it at that because we must confess it's not actually the point of this text. The point of Mark 2 is not these four friends, but we can learn a lesson from them. But we need to keep moving. We can learn a lesson from the four friends to value your good friends. But there's another lesson to see now, number two. Here we see a lesson now from the paralytic. A lesson from the paralytic. This is to realize your greatest need. To realize your greatest need. So this paralyzed man, he's hanging from the ceiling. Or maybe he's, he's touched down, he's resting on the floor now. Everyone stands in silence, waiting to see how Jesus will respond. I mean, is he going to heal him like he's done for so many others? But Jesus, he says something completely unexpected. Verse 5. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Thankfully for these four men, Jesus does not rebuke them for the property damage. He too sees what they're trying to do. He gets it. He gets what they're after. He sees their expression of faith. This paralytic believed Jesus could help him. But he couldn't act on his own. He needed his faithful friends to help. So Jesus recognizes their faith and in compassion, he extends to this paralyzed man healing. No, he does not heal him. Instead, he gives him forgiveness. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, wait a second. Why did Jesus say this? This is not expected. Jesus, though, he saw something in this man. He saw the paralytic's real faith. He saw the paralytic's greatest need. And so he met that need. Only, even though he was paralyzed, his greatest need was not to walk again. His greatest need was to walk with the Lord. Even if Jesus healed him and enabled him to walk again, he would still be separated from God due to his sin. And so what he really needed was an eternal healing to overcome his eternal sin problem. So remember, you always have to remember this. Everyone that Jesus healed, every single person that he healed, eventually they all got sick again and they all died. That was not his mission. That was not the goal, just to heal people. These healings, they were compassionate, but they were not the most important thing. Salvation was the most important thing. And so instead of healing, he offers this man forgiveness. However, I have to point out, in this case, we must admit the possibility that for this man, his paralysis may have been due to his own personal sin. Now the Jews at the time, they categorically believed that any illness was due to your sin. If you got sick, well, you did something to deserve it. You you sinned to deserve it. 
Jesus, however, said that's wrong. That's not true. We reject that entirely. And Jesus himself proved that point. Not all illness is due to sin. Sometimes it's just a result of living in a fallen world. You didn't do anything to bring it upon yourself. So Jesus rejects that common notion of the day. However, that doesn't mean that there are times when your sin can cause you illness. It is possible. Now, it's a fruitless discussion to have, though, because we can almost never tell. But it is possible that with this paralytic, Jesus saw him not only crushed physically, but also perhaps crushed by guilt. Most of the time, Jesus just healed people without saying, your sins are forgiven, right? He didn't normally say that. This was a special case. So what makes this special? And like I said, possibly this man had done something to cause his own paralysis. I mean, maybe when he was younger, he was a thief. And when he was trying to escape one time, he fell off a roof and was paralyzed. I mean, who knows? We don't know. But we do know with certainty that Jesus understood the greatest need of all people. And he came to minister to that need. So many people are crushed by guilt. And in a sense, that's appropriate. Because sin breeds guilt. That's on purpose. Sin is a burden. Not only separating us from God, but also just weighing us down in the process. This problem needs to be dealt with. But Jesus knew you can't deal with this sin and guilt problem by by good works. We're trying to be a good person, good deeds. It's not going to cut it. Going through the laws, it's not going to work. Instead, he came to offer forgiveness by grace for free. And he came to provide the basis for that offer of free forgiveness through his own sacrificial death on the cross. That's why he came. But when we look at this, what we find then from this paralytic is another great lesson. Namely, to realize your greatest need. To realize your greatest need. When Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven. He was confronting everyone in the room with the vastly greater importance of getting your heart right with God, not just your body right. And this is still true. Some people, they live life so concerned with their bodies. Of course, it's not wrong to want to be healthy. Nothing wrong with that. But some people, they make it of first importance. They go to the gym every day. They're on a special diet. They only eat organic superfoods. They do lots of yoga. They get screened for cancer every three months. So on. I mean, these things aren't wrong in and of themselves, but life for these people, it's all about living as long as possible in the best manner possible, the highest quality of life possible. And that's not what life is about. You need to realize your greatest need in life. Even if this paralytic was not healed, he would have been carried away this day with something better than two working legs. He would have had a guilt-free conscience. He would have had a soul at peace with God. And he would have had the assurance of the forgiveness of his sins. I mean, is there anything better than that? Can you think of something more valuable than that? 
How many people do you know, maybe yourself included, who are constantly plagued by guilt in life? They just feel like something is wrong in their life, something is missing, like there's a hole inside that needs to be filled. So they try and fill it. They try and fill it with all sorts of things that will, they think, bring them some satisfaction, some relief, health, money, possessions, entertainment, vacations, hobbies, sex, drugs, alcohol, you name it. They just keep cramming stuff from the world inside in the hopes that it will finally give them that relief that they feel. But it never fills them up. And even more so, this hole, like a black hole, sucks away their joy and their peace as well. It just doesn't work. Nothing works. But, but what's their problem? They don't realize their greatest need. They think it's health or happiness or a bigger car, a better house. Things which aren't wrong in and of themselves necessarily, but, but they have it all wrong. Their greatest need is not material, not physical, but spiritual. And it is to get right with God. And that starts with forgiveness. This is the first step, realizing this need. And when you get this, when you just start to realize your greatest need, let me tell you, you would tear through a roof to get to Jesus too. What would stop you? Just tell me, what do I have to do? And you would do it. Because Jesus is the only one who can do something about your greatest need. Thankfully, as we will see, there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we have to do. He offers us this forgiveness for free. But nonetheless, we have a good lesson here, a valuable lesson from this paralytic to realize your greatest need. And this takes us closer now to the heart of this passage. But we're still not quite there. Again, we could take this lesson further, but we want to move on. Let me point you to a third lesson now. A third lesson to learn now. Thirdly, a lesson from the scribes. Remember, each lesson from a different character. Here, thirdly, a lesson from the scribes. And that is to beware your prideful heart. Beware your prideful heart. Here we have a related lesson, at least by way of contrast, coming from the scribes. Verse 6 says, while this scene was unfolding, some of the scribes were sitting there. Now, the priests, they were the religious authorities down in Jerusalem for the Jews, but the scribes, They were the religious authorities everywhere else. They were the guys. They were the experts in the Jewish law. And they were there to always remind you and condemn you for breaking that law. After hearing about Jesus, they come to check him out. Anyone gaining this much popularity, they had to check out. I mean, is he for us? Is he against us? Is he going to help our power and popularity or not? And on this occasion, they were in the house, they were listening to Jesus, but notice how they were listening. Verse 6 mentions some of the scribes were sitting there. They were sitting while everyone else was standing. And that's because they always took for themselves the positions of prestige and honor, the first and best seats. 
But even more telling is the fact that they remained sitting throughout this whole ordeal. I mean, you see this paralyzed man being lowered from the roof, probably swinging around. If anybody, they should have been the ones to jump up in action and lend a hand, just in compassion. Okay, well, they need to help this guy. Let's bring him down. Let's get him to Jesus. But they just sat there this whole time. They sat there with critical, judging eyes. I mean, if you saw a person in a wheelchair in front of a building that had lots of stairs but no ramp, and they were really struggling to try and get inside, would you stop and help them, or would you pass by? And I tell you, you can learn a lot about a person based on their response to that scenario. And the scribes, they were the type who would just pass on by. Selfish, self-centered, self-righteous. So they sit, but more than just sit, they question. Look again at verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, Actually, the scribes have good theology here because that's true. They're not wrong to ask this question. I mean, if you heard someone today claiming to forgive sins, you would question them too. That's truly only something God can do. Only God can cancel a person's debt and remove their sin problem. But Jesus, he is claiming to do this himself. He's claiming this unique ability for himself. And it's not like the priests. The priests, they could recognize a person's forgiveness based on their atoning sacrifice, you know, the sacrificial system. And nobody confused that with blasphemy. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He is claiming the ability to forgive, not based on the law, but just based on divine grace. This guy didn't offer a sacrifice. Jesus just said, you're forgiven. And what this does is present a fork in the road for the scribes. Either Jesus is someone unique, like the Messiah maybe, or he blasphemes claiming divine attributes and abilities, making himself out to be God. Well, like I said, it's not wrong for them to question. But they should have seen the clear signs. Jesus came doing everything the Messiah was to do, saying everything the Messiah was to say. And if they had eyes to see, they would have connected the dots between the coming of the Messiah and the coming of a new covenant age of forgiveness. That being said, in reality, the scribes, they knew. The scribes and the Pharisees, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And we'll see that at the end of chapter 3. But he was not the Messiah they wanted because he confronted their pride. They knew the Old Testament better than anyone. And they saw the signs. They should have easily recognized Jesus and accepted him. But their hearts were clouded by pride. They had the power. They had the rule. And they did not want to give this up. They wanted a Messiah who would help them extend their rule over Rome. But they didn't want a Messiah who would confront their pride and their hypocrisy and their wickedness and humble them to the level of an average sinner. That is not a pill they were about ready to swallow. 
But here we learn a lesson from these scribes, and that is to beware your own prideful heart. Many people today, they are likewise too prideful to go to Jesus. And they don't recognize their need. They don't see how bad they are because their sin has blinded them in pride before God. This is an important lesson which we actually learned last week from the leper. And that is you need to see your sin. That's step one, acknowledging your own sin before God, confessing it humbly, crying out to him for this forgiveness. Whatever you do, though, don't cling to your sin. Don't cherish it. Don't protect your sin. The question is, are you going to be too prideful to go to Jesus? You see, when you see Jesus like this, you are likewise confronted by him. And you likewise, you come to a fork in the road, you've got to make up your mind. Well, what do you make of him? How do you deal with Jesus? Who is he? And hopefully you can learn also that he is one you can trust. He's the only one you can trust because he's the only one with this authority to actually forgive sin. Will your pride get in the way or not? And this actually brings us to the heart of this passage. We come to find now what this, what this passage is really about. It's not really about the friends. It's not really about the paralytic. Not even really about the scribes. It's about Jesus. And let's see a fourth lesson now. A lesson from Jesus. And that is to recognize your authoritative Savior. Recognize your authoritative Savior. The scribes, they were wondering in their hearts during this time. They didn't speak out loud. But Jesus knew what was going on. Look at verse 8. Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. Whether the Holy Spirit gave Jesus some inside information or he tapped into his omniscience or he just read the look on their faces, he knew what they were really thinking. I mean, they had seen his power. It was clear as day. It was clearly divine. But they refused to acknowledge it because Jesus didn't play by their rules. So here he calls them out in front of everyone and he, pre- he proposes this test by which everyone can verify his divine authority and ability. He says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? What's easier? Now, how would you answer that question? Which one is it? Which one is easier to say? The scribes probably answered in their heads, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, because nobody can verify that. I mean, you can just say that, and who knows if it really happened or not. That's easy. To say... Get up and walk. I mean, that's that's impossible because when it doesn't happen, everyone will know you're a phony. In reality, though, offering forgiveness is much more difficult than offering healing. In fact, for humans, offering forgiveness is impossible. But Jesus 
he demonstrates his authority and his power to do both. He go, he's going to do what they believe is the harder thing, the healing. He's going to do that to show them that he has power to do both. The real harder thing, which is to forgive. Look at verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet. And go home. And verse 12, he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. And this was an amazing miracle. Somewhere in this man's body, his nerve endings healed, instantly changed. He could feel his toes again for the first time. But he didn't have any time to sit there and marvel. He had three clear commands to obey. And he did. Get up. He stood up for the first time. Pick up your pallet, meaning he didn't need anyone to carry him anymore. And then go home. Walk out this door and show everyone that you have been healed. And as this man obeyed, the miracle was verified before all. But there's a greater purpose here. There's a greater purpose to this healing. What was it? Verse 10. Jesus said, He was going to do this so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This healing was really a display of his authority and power. This term, Son of Man, it's a key term for Jesus. He was called most Christ, and then secondly, the Lord. And then the third title was Son of Man. But coming from his own lips... His personal favorite title was the Son of Man. And that's because this title didn't have all the baggage. And what does that mean? Well, the title Messiah or Christ came with a lot of baggage, meaning the Jews, they had their own ideas of what the Messiah was going to be. They had this term Messiah, but they they changed it and had so many misconceptions and misunderstanding of who the Messiah would be. Jesus didn't want to be associated with their wrong Messiah. So that's why for the beginning of his ministry, he kept the lid on the fact that he was the Christ. His disciples knew, but it wasn't until the end that he clearly revealed that fact. But there was no such problem with the term son of man. Didn't have any baggage. Wasn't really used. People didn't know much about it. So this this title allowed Jesus to talk about himself openly and to reveal himself. This title comes from the Old Testament from Daniel where one like a son of man was given an everlasting kingdom. The son of man is one who will rule over all eternally. And Jesus took this idea and combined it with what the Bible really says about the Messiah, specifically coming as the suffering servant, and he used this to reveal himself. We'll see a lot more about this title as, as Mark goes on. But it's a title that encapsulates his person and his work, and that includes... His divine authority. We talked earlier about unique abilities, and this is it. This is as unique as they come. No other human can even potentially possess the ability to forgive sins. But as Jesus made the paralytic walk, he displayed the same divine power that enables him to forgive sins. As the paralytic got up and leapt for joy, he should have recognized that Jesus, the Son of Man, 
truly does have the authority to forgive sins, and so should have everyone else in the room. And this, this is the great lesson of this text, because it's still true. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, and he still does. As we read this, we are meant to recognize the authoritative Savior. That's the lesson, to recognize the authoritative Savior, because he still has the authority. He still has it. Jesus truly is the Son of Man, the one who will come and establish that kingdom. He is everything he says he is, and he has the ability to forgive your sins. But here you are, still at that fork in the road. What do you make of him? How will you respond? Which side do you take? Do you line up for him or against him? With him or on the other side? Will you recognize your authoritative Savior? And this issue of response leads us to one final lesson. It's a lesson now coming from the crowd. Number five, a lesson from the crowd. Finally, consider your present response. A final lesson here, consider your present response. Let's finish this up and read verse 12. The paralytic got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The crowd was amazed at the miracle, and that's understandable. It says they were glorifying God over it, and that's appropriate. It's appropriate to say, to God be the glory after seeing something like this. And they exclaimed that they had never seen anything like this, and that's true. But did they ever stop to think, okay, wait a second. I guess this really does mean that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Did they make that connection? And the answer is no. They're almost like children with really short attention spans. It's like our daughter Olivia, she can be playing with something, but as soon as she takes interest in another toy, it's as if the first one never existed. Like it didn't exist. It's forgotten entirely. And and likewise, the crowd, when they see this amazing healing, it's as if they forgot what had just happened, namely the forgiveness. They failed to grasp the fact that the healing was the easy part. And that was easy. The forgiveness, that's the impossible part. The crowd was amazed, but we never see the crowds turning to Jesus in repentance and faith. They were amazed, but they stopped short of discipleship. And sadly, later this is confirmed when we see all the crowds turn away from Jesus and turn against him. But let me ask you, if you were there, you're in the house, you see this miracle, this healing take place. Paralytic gets up, walks out. How would you respond? What would you think? What would you say after that? And I can tell you the right response. The right response would be to shout out to Jesus, me next. I want that. Can, Can I have that next? But you wouldn't be talking about the healing. You'd be talking about that whole forgiveness part. I want that. There's nothing more valuable than that. I mean, forget the healing. 
I'll keep my bad eyesight until I die. That's fine. Just get me that forgiveness part. I want that. That's the right response is to recognize Jesus for who he really is and to turn to him to cry out. Have you done this? Consider if Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins, then he also has the authority to leave you in your sins. You'll pay for them yourself in an eternal separation from God. And if he did that, he'd be only just. That's just justice. And God would be righteous to do that. But but you don't want justice. You want grace. And although you cannot control God's grace, as you encounter Jesus, call out to him, and God will give you grace. He will give you grace. The crowds were amazed because they had never seen anyone like Jesus. And that's true. You should be amazed too. You should be amazed. But it shouldn't stop there. You should more so repent. You should more so believe. You should more so follow. Because Jesus still has the authority to forgive your sins. Just think about that. Think about that. Think of all of your sins, everything that separates you from God and crushes your soul. He still has the authority to remove them far from you and make you right with God. And if you recognize that, what are you waiting for? Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for our Savior. This morning, every morning, we thank you for our Savior, the one who has the authority to do something about our sin problem. We have a very big sin problem. Our sin, everything we do against your will, every law we break that that you have commanded, we sin. And it separates us from you. And does so eternally, for you are perfectly holy and you cannot admit the sinner in your presence. In righteousness, you must judge. You must remove the ungodly man from your midst. But you sent Christ to do something about that problem. And he came forgiving. He came to forgive us this debt, this, this record book of sins just written off, removed, clean. We thank you for that, Lord. But we know that came at a price. That wasn't free, even though we are freely forgiven. It wasn't free. A price had to be paid for that forgiveness. And that price was Christ himself, as we will see later in Mark, marching to the cross, taking it upon himself willingly, dying and bearing your eternal wrath upon himself. That was the cost of our forgiveness. We get for free. What can we do? What can we say? But thank you. We want that. We We desire that. We are grateful for it. And we praise you for it. It just begs the question, now that we have it, how will we live? We've received this very, very hefty free gift. It had an eternal price tag, but we get it for free. How will we live now? May we indeed serve the Savior, follow him, offer up our lives in worship and reverence, for you are indeed worth it. We thank you, Lord for revealing these truths to us, is in your name we pray. Amen.